0: So if you would, if you've got a copy of the Bible, do turn back to um, Joshua twenty two as we find it in uh there on page one hundred ninety six of the Church Bible. If you've been in London City Presbyterian Church for some time, you'll be aware that on occasions when our ministry is away, we have a habit of coming back to the Book of Joshua. Now, of course, our minister is here more often than he is absent, and so um, our uh, progress through the book hasn't been particularly speedy, and it's taken us nearly three years so far to get to this point. But uh, this morning we come to the first part of Joshua t- chapter twenty-two. If you've been with us on our journey through this book, you will recall that the overall message. Of it is about how God can be trusted to keep His promises. Centuries previously, Abram had been living a nomadic lifestyle in Canaan. Abram was a sojourner; he didn't belong there. He was what our American friends would call an alien. He was a stranger living in the land of others. But there God had promised that while his descendants would be forced to serve in another land, after 400 years, God would bring them back to the land of Canaan. And this time, however, the land wouldn't be somewhere for them to wander as mere visitors. The Lord promised that they would be given, that the land would be given to Abraham's descendants as a possession, a land in which they would settle, a land in which they would be able to call home. Well, the book of Joshua is about how that promise came to pass. And if you were with us previously, you may remember that I described the book as being like a play in two halves. The first half, covering chapters 1 to 12, describes how Israel conquered the land. While the second half, covering chapters 13 to 21 describes how the children of Israel settled in the land. And in a sense, that's the end of the story. At the end of chapter 21, in verse 43, we read this. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. Last time we studied, in, we looked in the book of Joshua, we looked at the close of chapter twenty one, and the sermon was entitled All Came to Pass. For that's exactly what had happened. God had kept his promise to Abraham. But of course, there are still three more chapters to go, aren't there? The story isn't quite over yet. And as we move into chapter twenty two, we're really moving into an epilogue. It's not an account of how God kept his promise. These final few chapters tell us what happened next. They give a glimpse of how things were to be in the years ahead. And so it's to the beginning of chapter 22 that we're going to turn this morning. And as we take our first look at what happened next, we'll do so under three headings. Firstly, a recognition of past faithfulness. Then a call to future faithfulness. And then an experience of perfect faithfulness. A recognition of past faithfulness, a call to future faithfulness, and then an experience of perfect faithfulness. Firstly then, uh, a recognition of past faithfulness, which we find in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 22. Now you may recall that the conquest of Canaan had been launched from the east bank of the River Jordan. Indeed, one of the early studies that we had when we were looking in the book of uh, Joshua was of how the Israelites crossed from the east side of the Jordan to the west side in order to defeat the city of Jericho, which stood on the west side of the river. Before the conquest of Canaan started, the children of Israel had first defeated the Midianites on the east bank of the river Jordan. And having done so, two of the tribes of Israel had expressed a desire to settle there. You can read about it back in the Book of Numbers in chapter 32. And there we're told that Reuben and Gad, they had lots of livestock. And they also saw that this land on the east bank of the Jordan was good cattle country, if you like. And they asked that the land should be given to them as their inheritance. And after some debate, it was agreed with Moses that the tribes of Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh could settle in the land of Gilead on the east bank of the Jordan. But there was one condition. The condition was that although their families and belongings could remain there, their men of fighting age had to continue with the other tribes in battle in order to subdue and conquer the land of Canaan. Indeed, Joshua had reminded these two and a half tribes of this as they began their conquest. Back at the beginning of Joshua in chapter 1 verse 13, this is what Joshua says to them. And they also shall take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. And then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it. The land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, beyond the Jordan, toward the sunrise. So here at the beginning of Joshua chapter 22, the passage we're looking at this morning, we see the conclusion of the charge that Joshua had given to those two and a half tribes, back at the beginning in chapter chapter one. For some seven years or so, the men of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh had been brothers in arms with the other tribes of Israel. They fought alongside them. Together they had endured the privations of war. But now it was time to go home. This is demob day. They can return home to their wives and their children. At long last, they can return home to to their homes and their livestock that they left behind in Gilead. And here at the beginning of chapter 22, we see Joshua summoning them together like a speech at the end, at an end of year school prize giving. The twelve, the two and a half tribes are commended for the work that they have done. Look at verse two. You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. You see, they're congratulated for being faithful, faithful to the undertaking that they had given to Moses. They'd been separated from their families. They'd been far from home. They'd been in the thick of battle, but they had in their loyalty. They'd not just been obedient to Moses, but they'd also been obedient to Joshua as Moses' successor. Do you see what Joshua says about the source of this loyalty? You see, they hadn't been following charismatic generals, no matter how great Moses and Joshua may have been. No, theirs was a deeper and far more spiritual reason for loyalty. You see it at the end of verse 2, don't you? Their faithful fulfillment of the command of Moses was not just out of obedience to him. It was a sign of obedience to their ultimate master, the Lord God Almighty himself. Well, there's a couple of practical lessons we can probably take from just these couple of verses. The first practical application is to see that the faithfulness of the two and a half tribes required real sacrifice on their part. You see, the real test of our loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ is when it costs us something to express it. Anyone can be a consumer in church, turning up, But the challenge comes when you're inconvenienced to play your part in it. The Two and a half tribes had to leave their homes for seven years. Unless we're called to the mission field, we might not have to leave our homes for seven years. But we might need to get up half an hour earlier on a Sunday morning to come to a prayer meeting. Or you might need to invest hours with a brother or sister who's struggling, needs your prayer and your company as they wait upon the Lord. Either way, our faithfulness will require some sacrifice on our part. The second practical application from these few verses is that it's good to encourage one another, isn't it? Although Joshua would go on to warn and challenge the two and a half tribes... He took time to commend them for their past faithfulness. And there's a lesson here for all of us, isn't there? I'm sure I don't thank or recognize the efforts of others as much as I should. But what about you? There's much to be thankful for, much to celebrate as we see the service of others in the church. Remember the words of the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So one practical takeaway from this passage this morning, then, is to encourage one another in our faith. Recognize acts of faithful service and express appreciation for it. Well, if the We've seen a recognition of the past faithfulness of these two-and-a-half tribes. We see then a call for future faithfulness in verse, in verse 5. See, the two-and-a-half tribes had not sought Joshua's approbation, but they were mentioned in dispatches all the same. They'd had an honorable discharge from their service in the army, as it were, as they were sent back home. However, there was a but. See, the problem was that a stretch of water can become a great divide. During this last week, I had uh, the opportunity to have dinner with a minister who'd been born and brought up in Edinburgh. And although he has a strong heritage and a strong accent, and an affection for the United Kingdom and his home country of Scotland. He's spent the last 25 years ministering in Chicago. And by his own admission, America has become his home. Children have grown up there. He has grandchildren there. And the links with the country of his birth have become more and more tenuous. And in the same way, there was a danger that as the two-and-a-half tribes returned to Gilead on the other side of the Jordan, that they would become alienated from the ten tribes who remained on the west of the river. There was a risk then that the Jordan River, like the Atlantic Ocean, would become a barrier that separated the two-and-a-half tribes from their brethren. Indeed, it's only a short while later in verse 11, that we hear the land west of the Jordan as being described as the land of Israel. Within a few verses then, the language of them and us begins to develop between the two groups. So you see, as they returned to their lives on the far side of the Jordan, there was a very real possibility that the two groups would grow apart. And perhaps the greatest risk of all, though, was the possibility that the faith of the two-and-a-half tribes would begin to cool, And that the faithfulness that Joshua had just celebrated would diminish. And if you look at an investment advert, it contains a disclaimer. It says that it reminds us that past returns are not a guarantee of future performance. And in the same way, past faithfulness is not a guarantee of future faithfulness. So it is that as Joshua sends them back to the land of Gilead, he gives them a solemn charge to continue to be faithful. Look at verse 5. Only be very careful to observe the and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways. And to keep his commandments. And to cling to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. I think the first thing to highlight in Joshua's charge, the two and a half tribes, is is that he tells them to be careful. Careful to observe the directions given to them in the word of God. Friends, we need to understand that when he tells them to be careful... It's not just a piece of friendly advice. This is a warning against complacency. The word translated as careful here comes from a Hebrew word that means to guard and protect against an enemy. It gives uh, the idea of throwing up a barrier, a route. Joshua is clear that there is a real w- risk to their spiritual welfare. The implication is that there's a threat to their faith, that they need to be alert to the danger. And what was the dan- a danger for the two and a half tribes is also a danger for us as members of the church today. In 1 Peter 5-8, Peter tells the Christians to whom he's writing to be vigilant. He tells them that their adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. David Attenborough continues to be popular on television today, doesn't he? Perhaps you've seen his programmes about wildlife in the Serengeti National Park. The lions hunting for wildebeest bide their time, don't they? They look for the weakest members of the herd. They don't target the animal in the thick of the pack. They look for the one who's on the edge. The lion catches the one who is not paying attention. So Joshua's warning is apposite for us today. Do you recognize the danger? Do you realize how dangerous temptation can be? realize that there's a lion out there waiting to prey on those who are just drifting on the periphery of the church. Heed the warning of Joshua then. We don't just need to take care. We need to be on our guard. Joshua tells us to be alert, lest temptation or the devil tries to ensnare us. And as Joshua tells the two and a half tribes to be careful, he highlights four things that they should do if they are going to be faithful in following the Lord's commands. And we'll just note them briefly from verse 5. The first is to love the Lord your God. It shouldn't surprise us that Joshua's starting point was to command them to do that. After all, when the Pharisees came to the Lord Jesus to ask what the greatest commandment was, what did the Lord Jesus reply? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. Friends, why should we love God? We don't need to do so just because he commands us to. God gives us a far more persuasive reason. The Apostle John tells us that we love God because he first loved us. John 3.16 must be one of the best-known verses in the Bible. But friends, you pause to consider the immensity of what it tells us. For God so loved the world that, that he did What? During this past week, we heard uh, the tragic news from some friends of a young man who'd been involved in a road accident, and his family sat by his bedside until he passed away. One's heart goes out to that family to have a son taken from them at such a young age. But we're told in John's Gospel not that the son was taken from the father by some incurable disease or a freak accident. We're told rather that the father willingly and purposefully gave his only son. The father and the son who were together in blessed and perfect oneness for all eternity as we sang at the beginning of this morning's service. They made an agreement together. They made a pact that the son should be given. They agreed that the wrath of the father should be poured out on the son and that his undiluted anger would be directed at the one whom he loved. And why? So that we would not be exposed to that wrath and anger which we were justly due The Son was given so that we would not perish, but that we would have eternal life. So that we who so readily despise so great a salvation should not perish, but rather enjoy eternity with God who set his love upon us. What better reason then do we have to love God then than this? We love God because he first loved us. Friends, can I ask you a personal question this morning? Why are you in church here today? Have you come out of habit or obligation? Or because you love singing the Psalms or you enjoy spending time with your friends? Or have you come because you love God? Have you come because there's no place you would rather be than here expressing your love to the one who first loved you. Well, the second thing Joda exhorts the two and a half tribes to do as, as he exhorts them to continue in faithfulness is to walk in all his ways. One commentator puts it like this, to walk is to conduct your life along a certain path, a certain route that reflects the character And the revelation of God. When you walk this path, you keep his commandments and you obey him. But this isn't slavish obedience to a set of rules, is it? It's the desire to walk in God's path is motivated by the love that has been shown to us in Christ. Our love for God finds expression in actions. Jesus told us as much in John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, he said, you will keep my commandments. It was a sentiment we expressed in Psalm one one nine that we, we sang earlier. Teach me to follow your decrees, says the Psalmist, and lead me in your commandments path. But that leads me to a second personal question. This morning, if you say that you love God, do you want to walk in God's ways? Friend, sometimes walking in His way makes, means making difficult choices. Walking in His way may require painful decisions. Sometimes following Christ can bring us to tears. But the Lord Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The third thing that Joshua tells the two and a half tribes is that they should cling to him. This is the same word as is used in Genesis 2 to describe the relationship between a husband and wife. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Joshua tells the two and a half tribes to cling to the Lord their God in the same way that a husband and wife are joined together in life in lifelong commitment. You know, when our oldest daughter started in nursery school, there was a certain ritual that we had to go through each morning. When it was my turn to drop her off, I would uh, carry her into the playgroup to hand her over to the teacher. But our daughter would wrap her arms around me, protesting that she didn't want to go. Now, I would like to think that that was just me, but um, Rebecca assured me that it was the same when it was her turn to drop her off. Do you know... It was incredibly hard to extract myself from the clutches of a two year old. She had limited strength in her arms, but with two arms clinging on, she was a force to be reckoned with. And isn't that what Joshua is telling the two and a half tribes to do? Cling on. To the Lord with both arms with all your strength as if nothing can pull you apart and what was true for the two and a half tribes is true for us as Christians today friends you can do a group hug but that's easily broken only if you cling to one person will you have a grip that is not easily broken Only when you cling to the Lord Jesus to the exclusion of all others will you be joined to the one who can truly save you. And the fourth thing that Joshua exhorts them to do is to serve the Lord with all their heart and soul. There's no room, you see, for half measures. We can't share our affection for the Lord with another. That's one reason why we warn young Christians not to become too emotionally involved with those who don't share their faith. The Lord Jesus implied the same thing in Matthew 6:24. This is what he said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. This then is the substance of the charge given by Joshua to the two and a half tribes. Be on your guard. Love God because he first loved you. Cling on to him with all your strength and serve him with all your heart. Well, we'll just take a few minutes now. We've seen the recognition of past faithfulness. We've seen a call to future faithfulness. But we see finally in verses 6 to 9 an example of perfect faithfulness. I wonder how you would have felt if you were a member of the two and a half tribes making your way home to the other side of the Jordan. Perhaps you'd have a warm glow inside, having received Joshua's words of commendation. Perhaps you'd be slightly on edge, wondering what the dangers were. What had Joshua been alluding to? Verses 6 to 9 tell us two things about their return. Firstly, we're told that they returned laden with great riches. We see that in verse 8, don't we? Um, where are we? He said to them, go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver and gold and bronze and iron and with much clothing. But secondly, we see that they return to the land to which which they had been Promised and given by the command of God. You see that in verse 9. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. And that really brings us back to where we started. It's the same message. God keeps his promises. As the two and a half tribes went home, having been commended for being faithful and having been challenged to be faithful, they had before them a perfect example of faithfulness. And that that is that God had been faithful to them. They were going home to a land which God had promised to them and that God had brought it to pass. And again, what was true for the two and a half tribes is true for us today. If we need an example of what it means to be faithful, then we need, look, no further than the Lord Jesus Christ. He who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's no wonder, is it, when you turn to the last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 19, we find find the Lord Jesus having accomplished all that was required to save us for all eternity with him. And what do we read? This is what John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Praise God then that we have one who is faithful, one who is able to save us to the uttermost. May we love him all the more because of that faithfulness to us. And may we prove ourselves faithful to him as we seek to live in his service. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we have reflected on these words this morning, uh, that we are reminded of our utter dependence and indebtedness to the one who first loved us. We thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was God, he did not... Hesitate to humble himself and became a servant, to live upon this earth, to take human flesh and to die as the God-man on the cross at Calvary. We give you the thanks, Lord God, for his faithfulness, that he was willing to endure the cross, that he was willing to be accounted accursed by his Father, and all, all, to save us for himself. Father, we pray that you'd help us to love you in return and to be faithful as best we can. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.